Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. When I was a little girl, one of my favorite stories was Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Written in 1837, the original story is much darker and much sadder than the Disney movie. And one passage that I remember vividly is the Little Mermaid and her sisters having to clamp oyster shells on their tails. These oyster shells were terribly painful, but they were a status symbol, and it was their own grandmother who made them do it. I remember puzzling over that as a kid. Why would a grandma make her granddaughters do something really painful to their bodies and something that had caused pain to her too? It was with this passage of The Little Mermaid in my mind that I picked up the book Aching for Beauty, Footbinding in China by Wang Ping. So you can imagine my surprise when the first chapter opened with a passage from The Little Mermaid. This was a different (laughs) excerpt in which the witch tells The Little Mermaid, your tail will part and shrink into what humans call nice legs, but it will hurt just as if a sharp sword were passing through you. Every step you take will be like treading on a knife sharp enough to cause your blood to flow. The book continues that when the little mermaid finally stands face to face with her beloved prince, her new feet, which she has traded with her lovely voice, bleed. The prince does not notice it, and she does not complain. The next quotation in this book at the beginning of chapter one is a Chinese saying that says, a pair of tiny feet, two jugs of tears. And the rest of the book brings to light the fascinating history of foot binding in China. And I am so excited to welcome to the podcast the author of the book, Dr. Wang Ping. Welcome, Dr. Wang. Thank you, Amy. Um, I'm delighted and honored to be here. I've listened to quite a few of your brilliant podcasts, and so I'm very honored to be part of this program. Oh, I'm very honored that you've listened to the to some other episodes and super honored. We were just talking about the amount of research that went into this book. It was an incredible book. I learned so much and it's one of the rare, very academic books that was also readable. So thank you. <laughs> you mentioned that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny because when I chose this subject, right, I was studying my, my PhD is in comparative literature. And I actually couldn't really find a professor to advise me on this subject. What? And I actually did a minor in performance art. And there I found a brilliant scholar. And he took me in. And the first thing I want, I told the professor, a few professors actually, I want to publish this project. And even though I just started doing the research for my PhD thesis, so therefore I want to write it more towards like more popular readers, Mm -hmm. right? Not like those academic jargons, which often, to be honest, put me asleep as I was reading those books, you know, and I hate reading. I had to pinch myself, pull my hair (laughs) to get through it. And I really don't want to write another book. Wasting so many of my years, right? Because I knew it would take me like quite a few years to complete this project. Mm-hmm. And I want more people to know about this history mm-hmm. and also to, to uh, how should I put it? Because as soon as the Westerners, right, think about foot binding, the first thing that comes to their mind is, oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's oppression. Oh, that's put woman into like slave, slavery. And I went into this research actually with that prejudice. But as I was doing more research, more reading and talking to people with foot binding, right? You know, also the memory of my conversations with my grandma who also had bound feet, right? I realized it is a very different story. With the bound feet, they created, they were able to create a foothold for themselves in the patriarchal society, right, system. Well, I'm so so glad you opened with that because that just immediately reminds us that the narrative is always more complicated than it appears on the surface and certainly more complicated than it appears to an outsider looking at a culture that we don't know anything about. And so I'm really glad you opened with that. I I want 
to continue in that line of thinking with some questions I have for you. But first, I actually want to back up and just have you introduce yourself a little bit more sure. uh, with your professional biography and then also a little bit about your personal life. And maybe I'll just read your professional bio quickly and then you can talk more about oh, uh, okay. <laughs> your personal background. So Dr. Wang Ping is a poet, writer, photographer, performance, and multimedia artist. Her publications have been translated into multiple languages and include poetry, short stories, novels, cultural studies, and children's stories. Her multimedia exhibitions address global themes of industrialization, the environment, and interdependency. She is the recipient of numerous awards, a professor of English, and founder of the Kinship of Rivers Project. And also, I think it's so amazing you're doing projects with The Moth and with Snap Judgment right now on right, NPR. Yes. Is that right? Right. That's exciting. Those are two of my favorite shows. Oh, so. thank you. So I wonder if you can back up and tell us a little bit about you personally. Where are you from and your family of origin, your kind of your, your passions sure. and education, what led you to do the work that you do now? Well, I grew up in China. I was born in Shanghai. The Cultural Revolution began when I was when I just finished second grade, and so the school for, were all schools were all closed, books were banned. Right? Will you say sorry? Back up because some listeners might not even know what the Cultural Revolution is. Oh, the Cultural Revolution is one of the political movements, which lasted for ten years, and it was very political and very turmoil, to put it mildly. And for me, you know, I was a child and I was just set, determined to go to college, influenced by Little Mermaid's story, actually, right? Really? Yeah, because I heard the story on the radio when I was like five or six years old, and I just cried. And but at the same time, I really, really wanted to, to, to learn how to read and write and someday I'd like to, you know, I was living on the island, right, on the East China Sea. And so I wanted to leave the island like Little Mermaid, leaving the sea and to see the world through books, through college, right? But at the end of the second grade, the Cultural Revolution began. And so everything was shut down. There was no books, right? And all the books were burned and banned. So I started like, you know, sneaking into sealed libraries to read and, and I started exchanging books underground. And eventually I formed my own underground book club. And basically I taught myself till I got into Beijing University. You were self-taught all the way through your education until college? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course I couldn't teach myself science, right? Even though my dream was to become Madame Curie. <laughs> wow. I really wanted to be an astronomer to, you know, to explore the, the space, right? So I knew, like, you know, I was considered very ugly and with big feet, right? And so I actually tried. Everyone was mocking me, just big feet, big feet. So I was very ashamed. And so I tried to to bind my feet on my own without huh. knowing anything about foot binding, you know. Oh. So that actually later when I was in New York, right, studying performance art with a professor, I just started thinking about, and also at that time I saw a pair of those lotus shoes. They're so exquisite, so tiny, so inhuman at the same time, right? Yet so beautiful. And I just thought, how could any human put those feet into those shoes? It's impossible, yet it was real. So, you know, that brought back the memory, me being a six-year-old child, you know, just wanting small feet and started binding, you know, enduring, you know, excruciating pain, right? for a year, right, to stop my right feet here. from growing, right? Wow. And it did stunt my feet, actually. My feet are six and a half, mm. right? But white, <laughs> they have to grow mm. somewhere, right? Wow. So 
Yeah. What did you use to bind them? I think just, you said just, rubber just bands. Just cloth. Oh, just cloth. You know? Yeah, I didn't know, not know anything about foot binding. I never saw any picture, you know, except for my grandma's feet, right? And I just, you know, she had her, she had bound feet, then she let loose. But once you bound your feet, the bones were all broken, right? So you can't really like regrow the bones, you know? So she still walks really funny. She still has to stuff her shoes with cottons, right? And to fill in the space. You know, of course she made her own shoes to, to, to make, to fit her feet. But I just remember the odor, right? When, when she washed her feet at night, you know, I grew up. I grew up with like no water in the house, no electricity. So we have to fetch water from from outside and bring it in and boil water and put it in the thermos. So at night we each had a basin, like half basin of hot water to wash our face, then our midsection, then our feet, right? We call the three. <laughs> So I have the habit, you know, of like, you know, cleaning myself, like the three parts. And so when I remember the odor, when my grandma washed her feet, right? And we all slept in one room. So, yeah. So in New York, I just thought, this is just really fascinating. Me never knowing anything about foot binding but wanting to bind my feet for beauty, to be accepted by my family and my neighbors, by the society. Because my mother had small feet, even though she was tall. She is tall, and my sister is taller than me. Uh, she also has small feet, right? And I'm the shortest, but yet I had the biggest feet, you know? And that's mm -hmm. a no-no. So I started digging in New York at NYU. And so that's how it all began. Meanwhile, talking, coming back to myself, you know, I came to United States. I graduated from Beijing University. Then I taught a year in China. Then I came to New York to study English literature. And I walked into a wrong classroom at Long Island University, which turned out to be a creative writing class. And Professor Lewis Walsh, who has passed away, he looked kind of crazy, but I think I'm kind of crazy because I like like interesting people, you know, and I like interesting things. And it turned out he is a poet and it's a creative writing class. And I was supposed to take 18th century British novel. So out of curiosity, I sat down and wrote my first story. And the professor wrote, you have a story to tell, you should start writing a novel. And that is like, bang, on my head. And I just thought, oh, yeah, that's why I came to the United States to tell my story. So I started writing poems and, oh no, actually I haven't, right? So I stayed in that workshop. That's the only creative writing class I ever did in my entire life, you know? And then the, the professor introduced me to Allen Ginsberg. Who in was, person? Yeah, no. of course, yes. And Whoa. who was looking for a translator. He was for organizing the first Chinese American poetry festival. So, so yeah, I said sure, yeah, I'll, wow. I'll do it, right? So I worked with Alan for almost a year, and we traveled together with the best Chinese poets and the best American poets, including Gary Snyder, John oh Ashbery. I know, I was oh. lucky. <laughs> I was an English major, so you are like, I am so starstruck right now. I'm like, listeners, you can't see me, but my mouth is like on the floor. I'm like oh, falling on the no, ground. Thank this you. is incredible. Yeah, I actually, yeah. so I started uh, during the translation period preparing for the festival. As I, you know, translating actually is the deepest reading and writing you can mm -hmm. ever do, right? And so that gave me the key into the poetry world. Right. And I learned so much from, you know, English language and poetics. Right. 
and I started writing poetry myself. So, yeah, and I then I started writing poetry. Then I started publishing, and the funny thing is, like, Lewis helped me get NEA National Endowment for the Arts, and I barely got qualified. I just had my twelfth poems published, which is the minimum requirement at that time, right? And he he filled out the form for me as a kind of joke, right? Because like NEA, come on, right? <laughs> you know, this is all like every big shot poet is was applying every year. Right. And Lewis, he's very well known poet and published many books and has his own publishing company. And he never got it, right? But he said we still have to do it every year. So so he just signed it and you know, put my twelve poem published poems together. Then he asked me sign it, and I have no idea what I was signing for, right? So then he mailed it as a kind of like surprise and a joke, you know. <laughs> and I won it. Oh know? my goodness! And I believe that year, like mm. you know, what's that? The, the poet who won Nobel Prize, Greek, Louise Gluck. Oh, Louise Gluck. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, she was on that. She also, that year, she p- picked my poem for the best American poetry, you know? So oh it was just like, suddenly you walked into the, the wrong classroom, the wrong river, and then you suddenly everything just boom, just happened. I came to America with the dream that I wanted to get a PhD Right. And of course, the only way for me to do it, you know, I never studied math. Right. Even though actually at that time, just everything was happening. You know, I was engaged to a professor at McGill University. I already moved everything, you know, to Canada, including my only like valuable items is like two plates from Ming Dynasty. Right. And that was actually my emergency fund, right? My friend gave it to me when I left China, saying, if you couldn't make it, just sell these so you can buy a plane ticket, right, back to China, right? I arrived in America with $26 in my pocket, you know? So so anyway, so that professor, my fiancé, convinced me to take GMAT and to apply to for admission for the MBA, at McGill and <laughs> for an MBA, yeah, MBA. We I actually know. got accepted with no mm-hmm. math. You know? I don't mm-hmm. know how I, I passed. I actually scored pretty well on GMAT, even though mm-hmm. I have no math, right? But they did give me the condition that I have to take a year math, right? And they knew I had no math somehow, you know. So. <laughs> So I shipped everything already uh, to Montreal. I was planning to get MBA and get married and become a rich businesswoman, right? And and on the like Grand Central Station, I just thought, no, I can't do that. But my choice of I have nothing left, right? I have no place to go to sleep that night, and have no job, and have nothing, right? And, but somehow this internal voice just say, I will call it Little Mermaid voice, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. go, you have to go after your dream. So I did not board the train, right? And of course, I lost my two antique, you know, treasures. Never saw my fiance again. He was really mad, you know. So anyway. Wait, why, why did you lose the plates? He refused to give it to me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He said he he said the the cabinet, he locked it in the cabinet and it fell and everything broke broke. I I don't think so. <laughs> and you just walked away because it wasn't worth trying to get him back from No, no. No. Oh, well, yeah. I do feel a little bit bad because I broke the it's engagement, hard. right? Yeah. You know. So Wow. Um that's okay, you know, that's my price for poetry, right? Wow. And so meanwhile, I had six months to get a green card. Otherwise, uh, I'll have to go back to China because I have 
like I have a year like after graduated from you know master degree from Long Island University. I already wasted half a year because I was planning to get married in Montreal, right? So I didn't really look for a job. Then suddenly this thing came. So I have six months to find a job or I had to go back to China. And so what I did, it was so difficult to find a job, a company that would be willing to sponsor for my green card, right? So I looked and looked and looked and finally I thought, all right, teaching, right? Board of Education. So I went to Brooklyn to the headquarter of education. I don't know where it is now. At that time, it was in Brooklyn. So I just charged into the headquarter and I just said, can someone give me a job? Or I want to be a poet in New York. I need a job to get so I can stay or I have to go back to China. And uh, I remember the room just like silence, right? Everyone was just stunned. Then this bearded man looked up and he said, come here to my desk. And I went over and he said, you're very bold. (laughs) Aren't you? You don't give up, right? If I don't give you a job, you won't leave. I said, yep. And (laughs) so he said, well, we're actually, we need someone who can speak bilingual. We have a gifted program, a bilingual gifted program in Chinatown. Are you, you know, you want this job? I said, yes. So started teaching poetry with those bilingual kids in Chinatown. A year later, I got my green card. Actually, no, two years later, I got my green card. I taught at PS1 in Chinatown for two years as a bilingual teacher. Then I decided to go to a PhD program at NYU. And then I Graduated, I got my PhD and the thesis, foot binding was my thesis. And so the minute I, my thesis was passed, right, I immediately sent it to University of Minnesota Press. And within an hour, the publisher, Doug, wrote me, said, we want this book. Please do not send it anywhere else. And they agreed to do the index for me. Because, wow. yeah, I like, I was, at that time I was pregnant with my second child, right? And I just got a job at McAllister College and I knew what's coming, right? There's no way I could, you know, and I have a, had a two-year-old toddler, right? There's no way I could handle two babies, a new job and work on the index, right? <laughs> so they kindly agreed to do it. And the book came out, it was quite a splash and actually got the really competitive award for the best book in humanity of the year, right? And also then a lot of lectures, you know, invitations, but also a lot of nasty letters, right? I remember very clearly I got a letter from London saying like, Wamping, you write this book, right? You know, you have no idea what you're talking about. You deserve to be pricked by needles. At that time, London had like those, some guy going around like poking people with needles. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> <You're too young. laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> so, <Wow>. yeah. <laughs> well, we could have done a whole episode on just your life story. I had no idea. This is so incredible, so fascinating, and really inspiring. So, thank you for sharing all of that. That was just thank amazing. You. So I have some questions written out that I wrote as I read the book, and maybe we'll just go through these questions and you can tell us all about it. The first thing I wanted to say, and we alluded to this at the top of the episode, but just about the complexity of this issue, and I wanted to start out just with a note that that you write in the introduction of the book and that, quote, the concept and practice of enduring violence and pain, mutilation Mm -hmm. and self-mutilation in the name of beauty can be found in almost every culture and civilization. So this isn't something that's specific to China. And I think that's really important to talk about. My note to that was like, yeah, I live in Utah now. 
which yeah. is the plastic surgery capital of the United States. And I didn't I am, know that. Oh, oh yeah. I so much plastic surgery here. And in addition, I'm just always hearing women like when I go to the gym, like I just hear women talking about like these super excruciating like procedures that they get done to their faces and wow. just with this ob- obsession of looking a certain way. And so this wow. is an affliction in every culture, including right where I live. So so let's talk about the actual process of foot binding. Can you tell us how it was done and then at what age? What was typical? Uh, usually it depends. Some starts there goes like four or five, typical six. Then eight years old is already too late. That's because like, you know, the feet have formed certain lengths. It's easy to manipulate. Because the process is really painful. So they would push the four toes, leave the big toe out, and push the other four toes under the feet, right? The sole, and then bind it, like use this white cloth to, to, to bind and turn the feet into the shape of like little the rice dumpling, kind of, you know, pointed at the toe, big toe then gradually bring it. But also it's not just to make a narrow, but also have to make it shorter, right? So as you bind, the cross will just go through the, the, the ankle and pull it close, just shorten the arch of the feet, right? So over the years, usually it takes, the gradual breaking point takes two, two years, one to two years, until all the bones are just, the toes are broken, right? And the arch is kind of also bent and broken. So, yeah. So the feet will be very thick, right? So there's a crease, you know, in the middle, that is the heel and the toes just pushed, are finally pushed together, right? Mm -hmm. So once that's done, the woman, it will be difficult for a woman to walk. Right. And they would, they need to be bound forever with those binding cloths to, as a support for them to, to walk, to stand on their feet. So during the breaking process, the little girl suffers a lot. You can imagine. Right. And not only the bones has to be broken, but the, the flesh has to be kind of shed away through rotting. So. So otherwise, you can just imagine, like, you know, just you can't allow the flesh grow out of that. So the flesh has to be just not only bones, bones and flesh just to be broken and rotted away. But at the same time, even though broking and rotting and breaking, and the final products, the feed has to the skin has to be very smooth, no scars, right? And the shape has to be perfect, right? And and the woman has to be still woman has to walk with grace on the broken feet. How? They How? they practice. Yeah. You know? Like little mermaid. Like mm-hmm. every step is like on the knife. They have to endure and with a smile and with grace. So yeah. So one of the things that was so hard to read about is the dynamic between mothers and daughters as the right. mothers are the ones who right. are doing this to their daughters. And, right. and you talk about the Chinese word tang. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Tang. Tang. Yeah. Is it yeah. okay? Can you talk talk about that a little bit? That was so interesting. Yeah, well, tang is means pain. In Chinese culture, Love, the word love, is always coupled with pain, teng ai, which often is the kind of relationship, love relationship between mother and daughter, father and daughter, and husband and wife, teng ai. So you love with pain. You write a quote here that kind of 
develops this the, about this pain love relationship between mother and daughter. You write, quote, footbinding murmurs about seduction, eroticism, virtue, discipline, and sacrifice. It also teaches little girls about pain, about coming of age, about her place in this world, about her permanent bonding with her mother and female ancestors. Yes. End quote. I thought that was just so evocative and poignant. And I thought of you and your own grandmother with bound feet and then Mm -hmm. little six-year-old you binding your feet and Right. How, that that tradition must just be so complicated with right. love and pain in it. Well, it's not easy to be a woman and it's not easy to to become a woman in China at that time, right? In the feudal society in China. Especially once she's married into a total like strangers family and married to a man who she never met, right? And had to immediately, she's the lowest in the family. She has to serve her mother, parents-in-law, that's a must, and who actually often very harsh because they endured. The mother-in-law endured so much hardship. Now she's ready to lash it all out on the new girl, right? Mm. And she has to serve the husband. She has to serve all the husbands, like every siblings. And she is really the lowest until she has her own children. She becomes a mother. And a lot of girls, it's very hard to survive in that new environment. For 13-year-old, 14, like 16 is already very old at that time to get married, right? Wow. And so... So the girls have a very short period of time to learn everything they need to learn before they go to another, to go to a strange place. So you can just imagine the anxiety, right? And the determination for a mother to teach everything the little girl needs to know in order to survive and thrive. If the little girl fails in the husband's family, it will reflect back very badly on the parents' home. So, and it is mother's duty to teach the girl everything she needs to know, and also the personality, right? And so the pain she endures when she was six is kind of like prerequisite, right? (laughs) What is going to be like when she gets married, you know? And if she can endure the foot binding, she surely can endure what's coming at her. Wow. that That's a level that I hadn't thought of. That, so I'm so glad that you talked about that. The thing that I thought of was, is much more simple and basic. Yeah. And that's just that, as you described earlier, this is a culture where if you don't get married, you're yeah. without protection in the no. world. And so this a mother needs to prepare her daughter to be selected as a wife. And it sounds yes. like in some periods of time, in some places, you would not get chosen as a wife if you didn't have bound feet, right? right. So this is her way of ensuring that her daughter's going to be safe, yes. right? Yeah. Ugh, yeah. So hard. Well, it can survive, not just safe. You know, just, just getting married is not the end game, right? To survive mm. in a new family, it's, it's just a beginning of life. So they call the girl, the married girl is the water that you pour out of the house. Oh, like the dirty water? That's it. Yeah. Well, it's not dirty water. It's just, you know, just once the daughter is married, it has nothing to do with the natal families, right? She belongs belongs, to the man's family, right? So period, you know, so the, the natal families have not much to say. So there's another thing that I wanted to talk about before we get to the history of foot binding that I thought was, again, so important. You talk about the the written record, like what are you getting your, your research from? And you write that, quote, although foot binding was an entirely female practice, the discourse and literature that evolved around it over time were scarce and largely produced by men. 
the practice had been living as an oral culture exclusive to women who passed it on from body to body, mouth to mouth, handiwork to handiwork for more than a thousand years. And so I just wanted to ask you about that. What do we know about what women thought about foot binding in their own words, in their own time? Well, first of all, it's oral because women were not supposed to know how to read and write, right? Mm -hmm. And even though there are some, quite a number of women poets and artists, and actually a lot of them were either like from the indulgence of the parents who have money and the culture, right, education, they would allow their daughter, which is very rare. And a lot of time it's the courtesan. They were taught how to read and write and play music and paint so that they can generate more money. So that's so that because, you know, majority of women didn't know how to read and write. So the tradition is oral. But in a way they they pass down through their body, I would say, right? The body, foot binding is kind of like riding on females' body, right? And also their art, because they put so much of their creativity into those their, those shoes. If you ever saw those shoes, you'll be just, wow, this is like really just breathtaking art, mm-hmm. right? We'll we'll have pictures of them on our website. Yeah. So listeners, for, for sure, make sure to go to the website and and look at the pictures that we'll right. post there. Yeah. Right. And then uh, the culture, right? You know, what you need to do, when to do it, how to do it, and you know, and all the stories along with it. Uh, it's all like you know, it's among women. And then uh, at the end of the book, actually, the, I devoted two chapters on the female writing, and that is among the Hunan, the central part of China, right? That like uh, group of women, they developed, they invented their own writing. Very vivid and very beautiful, their secret writing. And no man is allowed to learn and read it or see it, right? They would write it on fans, on cloths, on different objects. And then they will pass this, they would, use men to as messengers because women couldn't really walk long distance, right? So men would only be allowed to be their passengers, messengers, right? Their postmen. So men would carry their secret letters in female writing that they did not know how to read and send it from village to village, region to region. And then the women would get together as a support group now, right? They would gather they would sew, care for their feet, and they would embroider their shoes, and they would share the stories written in their female writing. I found it just extremely fascinating, you know, that history. And I have a whole book of their writing, right? And when they died, those women would, like, they want to be burned, to be buried with the, their writing wisdom so that they could enjoy it in their next life right it's beautiful so, yeah and, it's just fascinating you know and that really speaks to the point that you brought up earlier about women's courage and innovation and the initiative that they took in their autonomy in carving right. out a space for themselves even within this patriarchal system and within right. this yeah yes. this system that kind of literally hobbled their bodies, but that they were be able to create beauty and community right. out of that. It's just really yeah, amazing. Female friendship, right? Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about just some historical landmarks regarding foot binding. So if you could tell us when it started and just the different dynasties, maybe that where it gained popularity and how widespread was it? If you could just kind of give us a couple of... Yeah, in a few sentences. It started as the dancer, the the royal concubine, like 11th century. And he he was like an elite artist, poet and musician himself, right? But he lost his kingdom 
you know, because of that. So he was very indulgent. And he had this concubine who's a great dancer. So he built a gold gilded lotus stage for her. And she would bind her feet loosely into the shape of the moon, new moon, right? Just bent and pointed and danced on the stage, on the lotus stage. Then, of course, all the other concubines try to win the favor from the emperor. So they would, you know, imitate this dancer, start binding their feet. And pretty soon, as the war broke out and the royal families had to, like, flee, so they would flee from north towards the south. And along the way, this custom kind of, like, started to spread. So another irony is the war often is the engine to spread a lot of culture, right? Mm. You know, so by the Song Dynasty and Ming Dynasty, foot binding became very, very popular, spread from the upper class all the way to the peasants, right? Then by Qing Dynasty, the Manchu rulers, they realized that this foot binding somehow weakened physically both women and also weakened the mind of men because men were so obsessed with small feet. Some of the men actually began to bind their own feet, you know. Oh, wow. That's right. Yeah, there were some, like, quite a few stories about men binding their own feet. So Qing rulers, they issued many decrees, like, for forbidding or like forbidding the Qing people woman to bind their feet because they realized their own Manchuria women want to bind, want to imitate this custom, start binding their feet. They said, if you bind your feet, you're going to die or chop off your head. And the men, the Qing men, are forbidden to marry bound feet women. What year yeah. would this have been, roughly? What uh, the Qing Dynasty, I would say 17th century. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all the way through. But it doesn't matter. So the Qing people, they would invent, the woman would invent the kind of shoes, like which is like, it's like very high heel, but it's in the center. So it was the pants that cover their feet. And it gives the illusion that they have bound feet, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So they will have the bound feet gait because the high heels is in the middle, right? You know, so, <laughs> so you have to walk in certain ways that sway and you can fall. So it makes them look very fragile, you know? So, yeah, there are like so much like poetry and stories about bound feet. It, you know, then the feet became a sexual organ itself. And at the same time, it's really interesting. Woman was bound feet. There are a lot of stories about women with bound feet disguised themselves as men and became generals and even pirates. So it's just really fascinating stuff. A couple of passages that I'd love to highlight throughout this history was maybe two themes that jumped out to me. And one you've already talked about a little bit, but just kind of this idealizing the woman as weak, right? That she's Mm -hmm. very fragile. And that was what they were trying to achieve. So there's a poem written during the Yuan dynasty, which is when the Mongolians were, had taken over China, right? Right. And that was between 1271 and 1368. And there's this poem called Song for the Dancing Girl Taking Off Her Shoes. Right. And two lines from this jumped out at me. It says, after dancing on the ivory bed, she reclines with such fatigue, like the uneven prince of wild geese left on the sand. The golden lotuses, meaning the feet, the tiny feet, the golden lotuses, too narrow and tiny to walk. Right. And I, and but that was what was idealized was just, and sometimes you said even in, in different periods of history, they would bind their feet so tiny, even right. less than three inches that right. they would u- have to use canes or they right. would have to be carried around. Carried, yes. The extreme that people are willing to go for beauty, for yeah. status, for, for power. Well, the, the interesting thing you have to like 
reduce the cut off your feet to gain power, right? That's the idea. Just like it still blows my mind, to be honest with you. I guess the last piece of the historical timeline that I wanted to have you talk about for a second is the shift, the huge shift at the end of the 19th century. Yes. When foot binding then became unpopular. So can right. you talk about that period right. in Chinese history? Well, at that time, Qing dynasty was falling apart and China was falling apart, divided you know, and, you know, burned down, divided and invaded by the colonialism, Japan and all the other European, including American countries. And Chinese men, scholars, began to just rise up and they began to uh, go abroad and study and hoping to study the technology, which is also the beginning and the, in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And that's how the British and the West could conquer China with their guns and cannons and ships. And China was still using magic and bones and arrows. So they wanted to study and uh, they tried to look inward and they believed that weak woman, woman with hobbled feet, produced weak men. Right. So they want to abolish that. But that was very, 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 very difficult because once you broke your bones, you can't regrow them. Right. So women resisted greatly. And also at that time, one of the things that came into China with the colonization is Christianity. They set up a lot of churches. Right. So they also started just preaching that foot binding is not good. And then there were some very extreme, like, young people. They would patrol the streets with scissors and they would cut off a woman's binding, you know. Wow. Yeah, yeah on the street. And which is, the, it's like basically pull off woman's pants. And oh, yeah, right. Equivalent. You wrote that in the book, yes, that right. it was like. So, yeah, those humiliated women often had to commit suicide, right? You know, they couldn't live because it's just too much humiliation, mm. you know. So it was pretty violent. May I read a passage that you wrote here, too? Because I thought sure. it was so interesting. You quoted a man named Kang Yuwei. Am I saying that right? Kang it, Youwei. Thank you. <laughs> Kang Youwei, yeah. Kang Youwei. Yeah. Is that right? In 1898, he wrote, quote, all countries have international relations so that if one commits the slightest error, the others ridicule and look down on it. Now China is narrow and crowded, has opium addicts and streets lined with beggars. Foreigners laugh at us and criticize us for being barbarians. There is nothing which makes us objects of ridicule so much as foot binding. Yeah. I look at Europeans and Americans so strong and vigorous because their mothers do not bind feet and therefore have strong offspring, mm -hmm. end quote. So as I read that passage, I have really mixed feelings, honestly. I mean, on one hand, I am not a fan of foot binding, and I think that his criticism of foot binding is valid. But on, then on the other hand, it just kind of breaks my heart that it's like he has kind of internalized this colonial way of viewing his own country, right? I mean, he, he seems like so self-conscious and embarrassed of all of China's struggles, you know, with poverty and opium addiction and just feeling like, oh, foreigners are laughing at us and criticizing us. And I mean, I it just breaks my heart that that he's feeling that way about China when, I mean, of course, every country has its struggles with poverty and, and with things like that. But I mean, the U.S. at the time, it was, what, 1898? The U.S. at the time, I mean, women weren't allowed to vote. Women were wearing not foot you know, foot binding, but they had restrictive clothing that they were wearing. And there's a huge poverty problem. And it had only been a couple of decades since 
black women were literally enslaved in the United States and that you have like women being exploited in factories in the big cities. And anyway, the United States had plenty of problems. So to say like, oh, the Western countries are so advanced and we're so backward, that just, that wasn't the right, I guess, argument against foot binding because it wasn't based on fact. And it just was a, a sad colonial way of viewing his own country. Thank you for for being aware. To be honest with you, this colonial mindset is still very prevalent. Mm-hmm. I encounter that all the time still. Is there something that you would like to talk about? Just like a final takeaway? You know, I'm glad we kind of like talked about colonialism. In a way itself, it's kind of irony because the female... The foot binding looks like kind of like ultimate, ultimate like oppression of women. But if you really look into it, women are powerful, right? I, I, I actually want to add, like in the short period of life, the girl's life, right, with her mother, the girl has to learn everything she needs to know, right? And because of this kind of training and lifestyle, I'm not saying this is good, right? Nobody deserves to go through such extreme pain but also makes Chinese women very, very strong and flexible. And that's part of the reason why Asian women, they can survive and thrive in any other culture. We actually can be more successful than in our own native countries. You know, So I think because of that kind of training, I grew up very harsh in China with no water, no electricity, and no heat, and had to. I was beaten a lot for every book I wrote, read. But it made who I am now joyful. You know, it made me realize joy. You have to go through a lot of suffering and pain to really learn like what the real joy is. And uh, we have the power to transform suffering. The signature life is, in a way, is pain and suffering. But it does not have to remain that. We have the power to transform it through the arts, through through poetry, through music, through just living life with like this attitude that we are own agents. We are agents, right? We have the agency to turn things around. You know, we have the attitude, right? And then we can survive and thrive wherever we go. Well, under any circumstances. Well, what a beautiful way to bring our conversation to a close. Dr. Wang Ping, I'm just filled with admiration for the way your life embodies, you know, all of the those principles that you just talked about. I'm grateful for your book. I'm going to be looking up all of your other books and your poetry. Oh, you. <laughs> <laughs> just so grateful for this conversation. So happy that I found your book. I would highly recommend it to listeners. And again, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.